morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Inside the Writer Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is Dwyer Murphy, whose novel The Stolen Coast has just been published. Dwyer, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio. Thanks so much for having me. It's a treat. So we begin this this novel's written in the first person, and we begin with a narrator who at first is unidentified to us. Um and he's talking about this other character named named Tommy. Um, so I'm interested to hear your thoughts on on beginnings, on what you hold back at the beginning, and and then specifically on why you think Tommy was was kind of the person to start with. As far as he, you know, we know more about him at the in the opening passage than we know about the the main character. Yeah, I love uh, I love writing in the first the first person generally, and then I, but I find. It doesn't always have, you know, like any story, it doesn't have the most obvious starting point. But for me, I always need a conversation to get things going. I can't really begin with just uh, a first person narrator who's going to tell you their own history or any too much scene setting. Even I feel like for me, for a story to get popping and really get started, I need to hear them talk and interact with another character. And, uh, you know, that's not always the most common thing in the first person, right? But to me, it's it brings out the character in a real way to hear those kind of human voices interacting and to hear how, in this case, he might describe another character. So the Tommy character is sort of a a local uh, a local hustler in this beach beach town in Massachusetts. And I thought it would be interesting to hear how our narrator might describe him. And, and tell a little bit about his life rather than trying to just, you know, tell you all the essential facts about me, the narrator right away. I wanted to throw him into a conversation and that kind of brings the story alive in a different way for me. Yeah. Yeah. So as you mentioned, the book is set in, in coastal Massachusetts. It's set in a community called Onset. That's, that's um, right next to Cape Cod. Tell us a little bit about the setting, why you chose that setting and, and about this, I mean, because it's this rundown community that's like almost within sight of these palaces of great wealth, if you will. Yeah. So, I mean, essentially, it's a romanticized, stylized, dramatized version of the town where I grew up, which is a small uh, kind of coastal village in Massachusetts directly next to Cape Cod, which I think people know of and have kind of an idea of what what that that wealth and uh, the the different culture that is Cape Cod, you have to cross over the canal to get there. And then once you're there, it feels like a different world. But I wanted to have some of that, that clash of culture, but also just this sense that you are in a place, uh, this version of Onset. Onset is the real name of a village within this, this the town where I grew up. I wanted to have this sense that you had kind of stepped away from reality and you were in this this hidden pocket uh, that is very much not what people think about it when they think of Massachusetts uh, and crime fiction or the New England uh, seaside retreats. This is its own little pocket that's kind of hidden away from the world. And that was important because this is a story essentially about people who have gone to the 
to the coast to disappear. They want to go to this town to start over. They're running from something and they they want a new identity and a new life and they gravitate towards this this little town on the beach. Yeah, I mean I love the 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 kind of nowhere feel of this town. And yet then you have this this these scenes where there's this big festival going on and suddenly, you know, it, it's almost like two different towns. Um the town, you know, before the festival and then the town during the festival. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of how it is in a lot of summer towns, right? Like it comes alive in a different way when the season is on. And then even within that season, there are these different periods. You sort of, you get tourists coming in and you have the weekenders and people who've been renting the same places or have beach houses that were passed down from the family. But then the summer often gathers a momentum, especially in New England. There are a lot of festivals in these different cultural, ethnic festivals uh, in this coast, there's a there's a large Portuguese and Cape Verdean diaspora, and so there are a lot of heritage festivals that descend through those communities, music festivals and seafood festivals. So I kind of threw together uh, a few different Catholic feasts and fishermen's feasts yeah. in together with a music festival, and I decided rather than having lots of them, I, I wanted one giant festival so that the it gave the novel an extra kind of momentum for yeah. to be built towards that. Yeah. Well, so you mentioned about Onset being, you know, sort of just on one side of the Cape Cod Canal and and the Cape where we start thinking of, you know, Kennedys and everything else is is on the other side. Um, class is clearly a, a factor in this in this novel. There are not very many places where old money is older than it is on Cape Cod, at least in the United States. Talk about a little bit about how class and, and class divides figure into the novel. Yeah, I think it's inevitable when you have that kind of proximity, right? The the especially in this case because there is a physical canal that is the, that's separating this town from Cape Cod, where the sort of in in this version of the the old wealth kind of begins. And I think that this is a crime story essentially. It's a heist story. There's a lot of uh, there's a romance to it and a lot of other intrigues swirling around, but there there's a heist structure to it. And I found it very satisfying when thinking about who, uh, who needed to be robbed in this situation. <laughs> I, I, liked, I liked the idea of targeting some of this old money because there's a certain confidence that goes along with that particular brand of new England, blue blooded old money, where I think that, you know, down from the Puritan times, they feel like uh, the the people who have that kind of generational wealth feel like they did something right to earn it, and that it's theirs to protect. And they've they have no no sins of their own, no skeletons in the closet. So, the idea of a a small heist crew targeting somebody like that and kind of uh, you know exercising some of those class demands that I think are very just here was uh, satisfying as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you talked about this as a heist, this is a crime novel. There's a lot of elements of what, for want of a better term, we could call the criminal underworld in this novel. Um, I'm not going to ask you if you are familiar with that from personal experience, but I am curious about, you know, how do you how do you research and or imagine something which by its very nature is is hidden and undocumented? Yeah, it. So I guess it goes back to I I have a few connections to this where I I had been I was a lawyer before I was a writer and have always been interested in the idea of identity changes and kind of fleeing the jurisdiction it was always just one of my pet subjects when I was a lawyer that whenever I had a chance to to research uh, I I like to play this game my wife is still a lawyer and uh, my father worked in intelligence and I I like to play this game with them where we we reason through if you were falsely committed of a 
a serious crime and you needed to get out of the jurisdiction immediately, kind of go uh, into the fugitive mode. How do you do it? How do you play at that out? And it's sort of a, it's a game of ideas and we kind of work our way through each step of the way. So that is kind of the premise of this book is that the town, uh, this little town in Massachusetts is the way station where all sorts of fugitives and people who want to just get away and start a new life, they can all go to this town and there's a service being provided by the characters where uh, they'll get a new identity and access to different exits uh, across across the border and out of the country if they wanted, or they can settle down to a new life. So it's just, a, it's a pet subject of mine. And it was a nice chance to kind of write this world full of sort of an Elmore Leonard feeling of lots of eccentric, talkative, chatty crooks and hustlers and operators wandering around the same place, all kind of working through their own dreams. Uh, and it's just, it's always been something I'm fascinated by. I love the your use of the word game. I think you know. I, I I think of that a lot when when writing a novel, when writing a thriller, especially or a crime novel. Um, that you know we get to play this game in, in a legal way because uh, right. it, it is a fascinating thing to figure out how how would you rob this person? How would you commit this crime? Um, you know, can you can you address that a little bit about the sort of the the yeah the I think activity of that game. You know, I think that's why people like heist stories in particular, right? Yeah. And the, in that because there's a game element to it it's it's almost always a slightly absurd setup to the heist itself and the the intricacy of a heist always seems a little ridiculous too but i think we all like the idea that we could sit around and really put our minds to it and assemble just the right crew and that we could take down a bank or we could get into a safe there there's a real gamesmanship to it right and it's there's something more satisfying or more exciting i guess and purely exciting than imagining a different kind of thriller or crime novel where you know like what if somebody's trying to murder me or i'm trying to find a murderer there isn't quite that same doom and gloom around it it feels more like a game that you could just sit around and open a bottle of wine with your friends and think okay which of us is uh the safe cracker who's the getaway driver who's gonna tell the hand the note to the teller and how are we gonna pull this off yeah yeah um so let's talk about Jack a little bit. Um, you know, you've sort of, he, he is our main character. We eventually do learn his name uh, and the narrator. And um, you, you've sort of alluded to how his business, but talk about how like his how he came to this business through his father and and sort of a little more specifically what it is that, that he's doing here in Onset. Yeah, Jack is kind of, uh, he's this Harvard-educated lawyer who's living in his hometown and working with his father, who was uh, an ex-spy who has a long time business where he kind of will gather people up and get them out of the country. Any sort of fugitive or crook or hustler is welcome in this town to get their new identity and move along. And so Jack is, uh, is a, a lawyer who's kind of disillusioned, disaffected. Those are the, the kinds of lawyers I like best. Uh, and he is, he's working in this business with his father where they, they, they take on all these people and they'll, they'll give them any new identity they need and move them out, which is, you know, it's, I, I am myself a disillusioned lawyer, and I, I've always liked that idea that I think most of us share some kind of fantasy or thought exercise where we'd like to believe that there's a place we could go and start over if we needed to. Sometimes you feel it on vacation, right? You rock, you walk by just the right beach bar and think, well, maybe I could start over there and that, that, that'll be my bar and I'll have a new name for it and I'll, I'll start a life over. So they provide this kind of service to to the people who can find them and it was you know nice to kind of 
right a father-son relationship as well there's sort of a romance at the center of the story but to the side there's also this very important relationship between a father and a son that it, it was it was a pleasure to write and it, it let me kind of think through some of my own past so i think when people find out that your father had worked in intelligence they want to know what was what was it like to have a father you know, growing up it mostly just meant that you know he caught me everything i tried to sneak past <laughs> him. he caught me uh, he knew it but it was an interesting uh, way to grow up and kind of a a nice little side piece to this story about a a, a heist was to to have that father in there too yeah and i love this idea that he they just start, they often are stashing these people in uh you know vacation homes that are not currently been you being used i i, I find that this, the the whole idea of you know just imagining these people coming back to their vacation homes and not realizing <laughs> who's been there you know yeah if you've ever been in like a beach town in the off season it is it's full of just these uh, you know cottages that are more or less empty and yeah. Yeah. hotels and motels that are kind of flitting around so it takes on a new energy in the summer but there there are always these these empty these empty places and to me it, it you know, when you're young and you're growing up in a town like that, you can't help but break into a few and show yourself around. So if you've, if you've got an empty summer, summer house in the off season, just know that occasionally teenagers are going to sneak into your house and find yeah. out what's going on there. Yep. Yep. So Jack, at one point, Jack says, every people smuggler is a philosopher in his own squalid way. What, what do you think is, what is Jack's philosophy? <laughs> I think that, so it's funny. I was trying to imagine I've, I had another novel with another uh, lawyer who was thinking about ways to dis that they are distinct of one another. And I think Jack is working in the criminal world, but is essentially himself kind of a, a very sensitive poetic soul who's walking around seeing the, the romantic seediness of his own life and wants something more, but isn't sure what it is. But I, a lot of this, I was trying to create this world that, I've always been drawn to the idea of towns like a Casablanca or something on the edge of a continent, both the physical continent and the kind of imaginative continent where everybody's kind of got their dreams and they're, they're thinking about their own dooms or their own possibilities. And that there's one kind of man at the center of this who is helping usher them along to that new life. So I think that he's somebody who can find uh, romance and poetry in these squalid little moments and you know he is himself he's a sort of like he calls himself or he is called derogatorily the ferryman because he's just moving people along to their next place but I think that you know like a like a Rick in Casablanca he's got his own code and his own uh, his own form of uh quiet uh self-negating romance to it yeah I mean I, I find it interesting that he's I mean he's an ex-lawyer he is mostly working with criminals but he has a he has a moral code. I mean, he's not just like all oh, break any law, I'll do whatever. And for the most part, what he's doing is is mostly legal, right? Right. I mean, yeah. You, if you ever need to start to create a new identity, there are some there are ways to do it. Some of it might involve forging documents, but yeah. not necessarily, right? Uh, part of what he's doing is also you know just people have very valid reasons sometimes for wanting to to start over somewhere new and to to create some a new identity for themselves they're not always just running from the law or crooks or debts sometimes we, people have very valid reasons for it so there is a form of this that can be done legally and i think jack just he thrives in the the gray areas of yeah, that particular yeah. morality yeah. yeah 
um, Jack's father describes his business, the business as uh, an open, poorly understood secret in terms of the way other people in the community understand it. Talk, talk about the relationship between between Jack and his dad and their business and the and the community in which they live. Yeah, this was a a fancy of mine because I don't know how that business would actually operate. If you there is no there is no town that I know of that one can go to now that is just the Casablanca where you get your exit visa. So I was thinking through how this might work because realistically, everybody's going to notice if you know hundreds of uh, hundreds of fugitives are moving through a small beach town that's essentially just a mile wide walking around. They're going to notice. So I. I wanted there to be this idea that everybody kind of understands what's going on. And in part, they respect that it's just, it's another valid business that's operating. I think especially in New England, but probably a lot of small town places, people know how to mind their own business. And if they feel like you're not hiding it from them, you're not trying to keep it a secret and uh, keep them out of it, they can invest a little piece of themselves in it too and find even maybe some pride in that local business that's thriving and doing very well, right? You know, you see... You see that with uh, like marijuana dispensaries that are now popping up all over the place that now they're legitimate and a lot of communities rightly take pride in a really well-run business, no matter what the, the form or morality or ambiguities of it might be. Yeah, there's there's a particular thought that I think Jack says this, and I just love this because I think it kind of it gets at this this weird dichotomy of a of a vacation community. It says a great deal of the local economy was formed around time how to use it up, how to save it, how to conceive of its passage. Can, can you expound on that a little bit? And also about, again, about the way that the idea of time in a community like this plays out differently for different classes? Yeah, well, so much of uh, a summer community, a, a town that you know maybe doubles or triples its population in the summer, so much of the rest of the year is built with that period in mind. You know, it's you're you're going to have to make hay while the sun is shining because that's the time that to make money, and maybe to seize a few opportunities uh, during that period when there are people there to spend money. And so I think that naturally, what happens is it distorts and bends our sense of time or sense of the year. It's sort of built around this big period where there are going to be new faces, new people in town. But for them. This is a very different experience of the town, the people who are just coming in for a week or two in the summer or maybe for a month and that they they come here every year and think of it as their own idol, this place that they've gone since their childhood. It's a completely different experience of that community and what those weeks of the summer mean compared to somebody who is, you know, a lifer, a perennial resident, somebody who has got to be there in the the the, the depths of winter and the spring and the passage of time is very different for those people. I think you think of the seasons differently too. You think of, uh, you know, the period when the nor'easters are going to come in and what kind of damage that's going to do to the structures, how that's going to move the the sandbars around and change the boating channels potentially, or how the salt air is going to work on a cottage. You know, these communities, houses need to be painted and freshened up every season because salt, especially in the winter and the spring, those cold, salty winds, they come in and they do, they wear down a community in a very different way. And I think the people who come in in the summer and just see the the new white paint and that the shingles are all fixed and everything is just so, they have a completely different uh, experience of these towns from the people who are there getting the, that illusion ready. And the people who are doing that, I think, are are owed a nice chunk of change. So they're, they're, they're working hard over the summer and trying to 
kind of put together as many jobs and sometimes hustles as they can. You know, they that that money is going to have to last a lot of them through the winter as well. There, there are quite obviously scenes and moments and bits of dialogue and in music and activities in this novel that are very directly related to the main plot. But then there are others that are that are not that are there to sort of paint a picture of the world in which Jack exists. Talk to us a little bit about about that about about crafting these scenes that that paint a picture of this deeper world, um, you know, without sort of slowing down the action of the novel at the same time. Yeah, well, for me, I think the kind of novels and especially the kind of noir that I like. Uh, is I think in a lot of ways the story is almost indistinguishable from the atmosphere and I think that you know there are these, all these different elements to a story the character the plot the the voice the atmosphere and I like for I, I I try not to neglect that atmosphere maybe I I do too much of it but I just love that stuff and so a lot of that on a craft level is about making sure that every interaction isn't just about moving to the next point in the plot and that there's room enough both for the characters in the foreground to experience other pieces of life, but also the characters in the background. There's there's life swirling on around them and small dramas happening all around. And my own kind of pet love is just, I, I love music and uh, physical art and dancing and basketball and all of these things that have a certain choreography to them so i like to load up a story with a lot of people dancing and playing basketball and eating food and drinking wine and saying prayers and listening to to stories in the background so whenever they're the characters whenever i can make sure that they have a lot of that life in back of them and around them i want to fill up the scene as much as possible yeah, I, you know, I, as you were talking, I was thinking again about Casablanca and yeah. you're talking about your love of music. And I think if you ask almost anybody, oh, what's the what's the best scene in Casablanca? They're like, oh, where they sing La Marseillaise, you know, which has nothing yeah. to do with the main plot of the movie. But it's exactly, as you said, you know, just gives this great, incredible atmosphere. It tells you more about the the emotions in that town than than any yeah. other scene in the film, I think, you know. Isn't that a funny scene where I I don't know how many times I've seen Casablanca and how many times uh, I will see it. I always expect to eventually just go cold at that scene, that that scene shouldn't be able to pull out my emotions the way it does. Yeah. But I can see it almost completely out of context and just catch that moment where they all stir up and come together. And every single time I move that I it's an yeah. incredible swell of emotion, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. So uh, on, on the flip side of what we were just talking about um, in terms of, you know, there there are scenes that are directly moving the plot forward. There's also some important actions and conversations that take place where our first person narrator can't necessarily see or or hear them. How do you decide what what not to show in terms of things that are moving that plot forward? Yeah, well, I think especially in this kind of a story, which is you know, it, it's a heist and a caper. And so necessarily there are double and triple crosses coming. And I tried to be realistic about what the narrator would know and also create a narrator, use a narrator who is comfortable with uncertainty and ambiguity and kind of trusts himself enough to believe that when the time comes, he'll act accordingly and know what to do and be able to handle himself well without needing to know every single piece of the story that is happening around him. And that was sort of at a character level. I wanted somebody who could accept a certain amount of uncertainty and move along with it and still kind of describe what he can describe and what there is without needing to feel like I'm going to explain every piece of it to you. And I think in a good 
heist story, we need enough of that, uh, those, those twists and turns that are more about uh, revealing a new layer to the, to the, the doubt and to the, the conflicting players here, because you've got players, you've got characters who actively know that they cannot trust one another, who are going to, for the interim, decide for one reason or another for love or money, they're going to pretend to trust one another for a little while. And so that's kind of a fun dynamic to play with, with a first person narrator where he might know that he cannot trust this other person, that there's a 70% chance that he's being double crossed here, but he's going to move ahead anyway, because there's a certain openness to life that he's chosen in this story. Yeah, yeah. So um, you mentioned briefly Elena already, and sort of the precipitating event of the novel here is the arrival of, of Jack's ex-girlfriend, Elena. She's a lawyer. She comes back from New York. Tell us a little bit about her and, and about how she seems to kind of straddle these two worlds of of law and crime, or or maybe you're going to tell me those are the same world. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's one of the ideas that's kind of percolating in her, at least while she's trying to convince Jack to, to rob somebody with her. She is a, a a lawyer who is from this uh, same little town, but kind of worked, pieced together seven or eight jobs and eventually got herself a, a new life as a lawyer in New York, but it's deeply unsatisfying to her. She's now kind of doing uh, legal corruption, you know, like she's uh, she's corrupt still and she's crooked, but it's all too legal and too above board for her. She wants, she's kind of a, she's a confidence artist. She's a, she's a hustler and she's got the, she's got the spirit that she she sees a mark and she kind of needs to go after it and so after a long hiatus she's decided to come back to this town and together with jack she's got that that one big job that she wants to pull off she's seen an opportunity to make a to make a fortune and she's going to go for it but you know a lot of it is i wanted a heist story i, I love a particular kind of usually like a neo-noir where there are two characters who are romantically entangled, but also criminally entangled and every step of their plot, their, their heist is going to be another step of the courtship. And there's a, this dance where they decide whether or not they can trust one another. And the attraction is there regardless, but they're they're They, they know that they can't trust one another. And for her, she, you know, she's essentially, I think most of the female leads that I, I write tend to be variations and versions on my wife who's uh who's got a, a, a nice sense of international intrigue herself so it was it was a lot of fun to kind of write some of the 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 scenes between those characters getting tangled up and to try to find some of the electricity between them yeah i like what you're saying about about trust because you know in a way that's that's true in any relationship right even if you're not trying to pull off a big heist but <laughs> but when when you're in a a novel like this where where there are these bigger stakes you know than just are they are they or aren't they going to end up together um it sort of heightens all of that question of do i trust this person uh you know it, it seems to me it heightens everything about an interpersonal relationship yeah it's not just your heart on the line it's also you know your your physical person and your yeah. freedom liberty is on the line as well so uh you know i i think that that was a big part of the fun and it made it so that whenever they're together, it wasn't just another stage in their relationship where, you know, it, it actually gives you quite a bit of freedom, I think, as a writer to have that structure, that heist structure to it, because you can kind of rely that each of these scenes will have uh, a built in tension to them and, and a, a kind of momentum to them because they're all building towards this crime. And there's 
a danger to it? Will they get caught? Will they double cross one another? And it gives you this freedom to kind of pause and allow the characters to just banter and have some fun and dance around one another and kind of test one another conversationally, which is something I always love in these stories is when the, the two characters get to kind of square off for a little while and interrogate and cross interrogate one another and find out what's really going on. Yeah. Yeah. Elena says something to Jack that, that really struck me as a novelist. He says, she says, talks about how few individuals she has encountered. Um, what did, what does Elena mean by an individual? Uh, so that's funny. I, when I wrote that, I, it is quite important to the novel, but you know how sometimes you introduce an idea sometimes through a character that just feels right to that character. And then you suddenly realize that it is kind of like a key and a lock for the whole story that I I hadn't anticipated and didn't really see until the, the whole of this was done. Honestly, it, on a very writerly level, that was kind of my version of a, a scene that I love from a James Salter novel, Light Years, where the two of the characters... Uh, he's introducing him to a tailor in New York because he wants his friend to meet this tailor who he thinks of as just one of these people that you've got to meet because it, you'll appreciate and respect what I'm, what I'm seeing in this person's essence. And I, I wanted Elena to have some of that too, where in part, she feels like Jack is the only person who can understand her. So when she has this idea about, you know, they've always had this idea between they're only a few individuals who are walking around the earth and they're kind of without precedent or mold and they're they're true, they're truly individual them, themselves. She thinks Jack is kind of the only person in her life who can understand what she means by that. And so she meets this kind of small time con man who's about to go down the Cape and work his own job. And she just, she brings him by, Jack's house for a night because she wants him she wants him to see this lovely thing that she's brought him that only the two of them can kind of grasp the meaning of and I for her I think of her as kind of she's an artist and she she has a sense of artistry and so when she sees it in the world something authentic and beautiful she wants to show the one other person in her life who can who can understand what that means yeah yeah there's a, there's another fascinating statement that that really struck me, and I would love to hear you unpack it a little bit. And and that is, Jack says, in my experience, nearly all career criminals think of themselves romantically. The dabblers and civilians are the ones you have to watch out for. That probably comes from uh, my time as a lawyer, where I did. I, it was my experience that you know these accidental criminals always are a bit more erratic and dangerous, I think, when you're dealing with them. Uh, a sort of hardened career criminal has necessarily come up with a story for his life as to what it means and why he's made these decisions. And there are all these kind of codes of honor and conduct and the these intricacies of what that life might mean. And it's essentially a you know, a romantic narrative that they've convinced themselves of their place in this criminal world. And uh, I think that it's important to kind of understand that when you're dealing with them too, regardless if you're their lawyer or not. It's it's an interesting thing to kind of realize about these people. Uh, and the ones who aren't, they're the ones who I find a little bit more dangerous, especially the ones who don't think of themselves as criminals at all. Like we've got a character here who's kind of the old money New England representation, Paulson, who is a successful lawyer and has all the trappings of being, you know, a pillar of the society, uh, but occasionally dabbles in some 
some money laundering or he'll hold something for a client that he's not supposed to be holding because he likes to feel tapped into that that world of criminals and gangsters and i find those people more dangerous both on a practical level of your day-to-day life and your interaction with them and on a moral level they're they're quite a bit more dangerous because they they really think of themselves as good in some way you know that they they're they're rich and successful and that life has owed them to this because you know they they were entitled to it i find that very dangerous yeah and with with paulson you know i i find the notion that somebody thinks that his time is worth a thousand dollars an hour like I mean, you, can, you yeah. can make an argument that that is a criminal notion right there <laughs> yeah. i know isn't it oh, man when i yeah i remember i worked at sort of a big uh corporate practice in new york for a while and when you when you first see what they charge for your time as a you know at that point you're still in your 20s and you 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 you're not you're not worth it necessarily but that somebody's still out there charging six seven hundred dollars an hour for you to look at a case for a little while and give your opinion on it it's the yeah the, the those rates are themselves ludicrous but people can they can get them and people will keep paying them i guess so there's there's a point in the novel i don't want to give anything away so i'm not going to say what happens but there's a there's a point and maybe more than one point where something pretty dramatic happens but it's re- it's related in a very matter of fact way in just in just a sentence or two. We don't have what we get in some novels, you know, a foreshadowing or we slow the pace down before a big dramatic event is going to happen. Can you talk about how the style of narrative affects the reader's experience of the of the story? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, I'd like to think uh, as somebody who cares about this that the style is everything about how the reader will experience this, but there there is something satisfying to feeling like when you are going to write a really dramatic important scene i think it's my instinct i don't know about you is to to kind of underwrite it and strip away a lot of the 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 art around the way that is being conveyed because otherwise you're just you know you're going to be trying to do something purple and over the top and describe this big this big uh dramatic scene and you can't really convey drama by just telling people okay my language is elevating this is going to be dramatic now I think it's more effective if you kind of lull them into a sense of security and comfort and I think for me that tends to be kind of a drawling prose where you feel like you know you're being told a story by a friend of yours and you know there's a point to it but you're not expecting anything to too wild to happen it's just you know you've met up with your friend at the end of the day and something interesting happened to him and he's going to tell you a little bit about it and here tell you a few of the ins and outs and we'll take a diversion here and then suddenly you can kind of hit them with the the truly life-altering thing that is actually being conveyed and I, I find that at least to be personally a very effective mode of storytelling yeah I think so I mean it, it sort of takes out in a good way the you know, for want of a better term, just the the idea of, hey, you're not going to believe what happened to me. Like if you right. leave out the you're not going to believe what happened to me, then the thing that happened to you is a lot more surprising when you get to it because you haven't necessarily set up this expectation, you know. Exactly. And for me, I almost all of my writing is conversational, right? That it, it feels like I I want it to be I want every scene to have the feeling that you have met up with your friend uh, or maybe a stranger in a bar in some far off hotel and that you are just being told an interesting story. I like that as a basic uh, atmosphere and 
you are going to be on the hook. Maybe the the reader, it gives gives this feeling like maybe the reader is participating in the story a little bit more. And I think it gives the narrator uh, a sense that there's a real human voice that is doing the the telling here. Yeah, yeah. So you've, you've used the term noir several times. We've talked about Casablanca a little bit. Um, this this novel certainly has been referred to as a neo noir novel. What for you in on the page? What are the essential elements of the noir, and how do you tap into those elements in in the Stolen Coast? I think um, I always kind of look to. I think like Megan Abbott and Laura Lippman have these uh, perfect summations of noir that don't spring to mind immediately, but the sort of sense of them. Uh, the essence is that people who's, who, whose lives have fallen short of their dreams in one way or another, and they're going to go for it anyway. And they're trying to, I think, in a good noir, all of the characters walking around have these hidden hopes and dreams and disappointments. And there's this kind of sense of fatality and doom that's trailing them around. And they are, against their better judgment, going to kind of pursue some of these, these private dreams of theirs uh, and we we as the reader kind of know that there is a sense of faithfulness to them uh, and noir is just i mean it's about a worldview too I, personally the kind of noir i love the most also has it's not the the real gritty tragic stories that those have their place and their i i love those as well but the thing i love the most is that world weary humor uh and people who are going through very dark and disturbing things and maintaining about it a kind of a wit or an acceptance of that fate and uh, to me that's a lot of what marks a good noir is that 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 ability to preserve some wit in the face of doom um you, you we talked a little bit about the you know the difference between the season and the off season uh at, at a beach town and but there was a there's just this quick descriptor you have where you talk about a beach town in the weeks after the season ends. And to me, even though you don't go into a lot of detail about what that means, it just has this very melancholy feel, um, that, that descriptor. T talk a little bit about the role that, that mood and atmosphere play in this novel. Yeah, in, in that particular mood, too, it, I think is one that even if you haven't been in a beach town after the season ends, you can, as you say, you can kind of imagine what it might feel like. There's sort of this relief in a way because the tourists have gone, but with them has also gone the opportunity uh, to make some money. And honestly, in New England on September, boy, there couldn't be a nicer time of year to be here. It's, it is, there's a real pristineness to the air once the heat has cleared out and the tourists have cleared out. But there's also this atmosphere of, I think, immediate nostalgia for the, another summer has just passed, you know, another summer it gets you thinking about your life. And uh, it, you know, it, it has that feeling of a new period in one's life, even if it's just a week away from what has just happened. The festivals have just ended, Labor Day has passed, and now we're into September. And I think it feels very much like turning over a new a new period of the calendar and a new stage of one's life. So for me, the that's the atmosphere I really like to live in. Those, you know, the immediate aftermath where everybody's kind of reckoning with with what has just happened. So in this case, there was a large festival as well. So you get to kind of you know that feeling when you've been on a bender or a tear for a few days and you've just been you've been living in the moment and then 
after after that moment is done you have to wrestle with what 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 that might mean what that exposed about yourself what you've just done during that festival that that vacation from from real life for a little while yep yep well we like to end every episode of inside the writer's studio with the same 10 questions you should be able to answer each of them in just a few words but hopefully they'll give us a little insight into you and into your writing so if you're ready we will begin do it what word do you love to work into your writing Immaculate. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Uh, literally. Uh, where's your favorite place to write? I like to move around a lot during the day, but I, my best writing is always in a, a library. I like to be in a, in a good library. Where could you never write? I was a New Yorker for a long time, so I learned to write almost everywhere. I don't <laughs> think I can. I don't think I could write on the subway. I can do a lot of things on the subway, but I don't think I could write on the, on the subway. Yeah, yeah. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Most of them I would ignore. I kind of like to just go with the rhythm of it. But uh, I suppose the idea that you need uh, a subject at the the beginning of a sentence, sometimes I like to just launch into the middle point uh, in a in a sentence and ignore that subject altogether. What was the first book you remember reading? Uh, summer of, yeah, Summer of 49 is probably, I, I read a lot of baseball literature when I was young and those are the first things I, I can remember moving from like some sort of kid's book about baseball into like the Halberstam and Roger Kahn books about baseball. And those are my, four, my first books that I can really remember. What are you reading now? Uh, right now, what what did I bring with me on vacation? I think I I have some uh, I have some historical fiction, The Spring of the Ram, that I brought with me that I I had never dived into, and it's been it was very good train reading. I took the Amtrak from New York to Boston and got to go along the New England coast with my historical fiction. Nice, nice. Um, what book would you like to have written? Oh, that's a good one. I think because I'm working in this. Base now, I admire Elmore Leonard's books more than anything else I can think of at the moment, and kind of at various moments try to aspire to some of that perfection. Uh, and so I think uh, almost all of his books I somehow I, I admire so deeply and wish I could write like that. What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? I'm not going to say never will, but I would love to write like a, a proper rom-com, uh, just a romantic comedy in a in book form, and then we'll adapt it to the screen after. Yeah. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? That it was funny. I, I always want to to make people laugh with these things. I know that's odd to say when you're talking about a crime book or a thriller, but I want I would I would die if people didn't think these books were funny. I think so. I I need. I need to know that I've made people laugh. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and my guest today has been Dwyer Murphy, whose novel The Stolen Coast is available wherever books are sold. Dwyer, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. 
Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro.fm supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. On our next episode, I'll be talking with Alice Bell, author of the ghostly mystery, Grave Expectations. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.